Well, hello all. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Brett Chisholm. And I'm Josh Evans. And this is the show where we discuss our favorite content from the world of entertainment. On this episode, we have a little chat on human brain augmentation. We're going to take a quick lap around the content circuit where we talk about what content we are currently consuming. And after that, Josh is going to do a deep dive on The Long Walk, one of his absolute favorite books. It's by Stephen King, aka Richard Bachman. So to hear more about it, check it out. Thanks for listening. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books, and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Something that I was thinking about that I, I know you'll have an interesting take on this is have you thought about how close humanity is to digitally enhancing or altering our brain. If you think that'll happen in our lifetime and if you think that's a good idea or not. Yeah, those are all uh, interesting things to talk about. I, I do think that digital enhancement of our brain or our mind is going to come in our lifetime. I mean, I am only basing this off of books that I've read or podcasts that I've listened to with people that actually know what the hell they're talking about. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people that are way smarter than I am that make very uh, convincing arguments that we're at least looking at some kind of AI super intelligent being within the next 50 years. I mean, there are people that are talking about it being sooner than that. I mean, it's so hard to make predictions like this because we don't really know if AI is possible. I mean, we don't, we don't know. We don't understand consciousness, but it just seems like from scientific analysis that there's nothing that you, that is special about humans or human brains that you couldn't replicate. Um, But once again, you know, we don't really understand where, where consciousness comes from, but it seems like it's just a byproduct of, of data processing. And that's all our brains are doing is is just processing data. It's just like electrical and chemical connections. I mean, that's, that's really all it is. And if you could duplicate that or mimic it in some way digitally, or like using hardware with some kind of algorithm software on top of it, um, you know, it's, it's only a matter of time before we integrate that intelligent system into being a part of us. Otherwise, we we will become obsolete if we do not integrate with that next level of of AI. I mean, what's the point of existing anymore? We're going to be like uh like a rock compared to this thing, you know. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this because um so I've got a set of wireless headphones. I've got a Fitbit which can interface with my phone and also control volume and playback on my headphones. And then I got my phone, which is essentially, you know, a a window into the internet, which is itself a window into most of the knowledge that's available to humanity. I know there's a lot of stuff that's, that's possibly hidden, but the access that you have in the palm of your hand is absolutely unbelievable. And it is like a digital augmentation. And I thought about that, like those three things interacting as like a digital web around my body where I can instantly 
playback and keep one headphone and instantly playback, uh, you know, a podcast or a video or take a call. I can adjust volume on my, on my watch, which is like one of the coolest features, you know, if like my hands are full and I can just like adjust it without taking my phone out of my pocket. And then having access to the ability to open my phone up and look up any definition or background on on anything I'm thinking about made me think about that being integrated into, you know, a brain system, Um, especially with something like augmented reality glasses coming out soon. I'm wondering how long it is before all of those systems are combined into something like maybe a contact lens or maybe just a, a straight brain interface that is installed, you know, hardwired into us. And that's, uh, I'm, I hope, I hope I live to see something like that because the amount of power that just the very rudimentary systems that are available to me now, the way it makes me feel augmented. Like I would love to see what it's like to take that next step and become even more powerful by having that stuff, just hands-free wireless accessible to me at all times. Yeah, I think uh, Elon Musk is probably going to lead the way with this. I really do. He's got a company um, uh, called Neuralink that uh, is like, I can't find any information about it, but I first heard about it from a great blog um, post. I I mean, it's practically a short book, a novella, but uh, Tim Urban's blog, Wait But Why, he touches on multiple um, Elon Musk companies and kind of discussions, but he goes very in depth into kind of the anatomy of the brain and where we're at and where we're going. And I mean, we, we have, we have hardwired things into people's brains. Um, one thing that I'm familiar with is, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm not that familiar with it, but I just know that this, this exists, but people that are blind, that aren't like augmenting their, you know, it's, it's something to do with the optic nerve or actual, the actual like structure of their eye is kaput. So they have a digital camera that has a wire that goes to a microchip and the microchip is actually placed on the brain. So you're talking about, you know, a, you're talking about hard wiring a piece of technology directly into your brain. Um, the resolution is not very good. It's kind of like a, uh, um, I, I don't know. It's just like a super pixelated black and, you know, there's, I think only black and white pixels. So you don't get any like shades of gray. You don't get any colors, but I mean, you can make out kind of like shadow shapes of your world around you. It, you know, obviously the camera is not the, the issue that of the pixelation. It is the, the microchip that is integrating onto your brain. But the the way that Elon Musk looks at it, this is the first step, right? I mean, where were we with computers not that long ago? I mean, you know, the the uh, first computers were the size of a room, and now we have more computing power in the Apollo space missions in a, like a simple calculator, like a scientific calculator, right? I mean, we have processing in our cell phones that we couldn't have imagined. 20 years ago, right? I mean, even 10 years ago, five years ago. So it, it's so hard to make, I think, predictions other than the fact like it is inevitable. 
if we don't get wiped out or we don't wipe ourselves out, it's it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. I absolutely think it's going to happen. And uh, I think we're going to connect ourselves directly into the internet. I mean, I really do. Upload, download, like connecting on a network with another person, not like a visual, you know, not a not a screen avatar like i'm talking about like mind control mind melding networks i think i think it's going to happen i have a hard time understanding like what it's going to look like what it's going to feel like but if i really meditate on it i close my eyes and i try to imagine it i sometimes feel like i can i don't know maybe get a little glimpse of what it would be like to to lose myself and feel like others in my head there's a lot of precedent for that in sci-fi you know like in altered carbon they have the vr system that they can load themselves into and interact you know person to person but in any kind of environment that they can create so i think with like what you were saying about the uh about the uh treatness for blind uh the treatment for blindness i think even with that low resolution black and white or blurry whatever the image is i think even that amount of input would feel like a superpower. And I know that there are treatments for epilepsy that involve putting electrodes in the brain. But the thing about those treatments is those are, those are medically designed to treat um, an issue, a medical issue or problem. And so, you know, those, they may be elective, but they're also about, uh, improving the quality of life in some cases with epilepsy, maybe saving someone's life. So what I wonder is if something like this becomes available commercially and it is elective and it is essentially, you know, for, for fun, which you can kind of say our having a phone is not necessary, but when you have it, it, it increases your enjoyment of life. Would you, go through some sort of brain surgery to get that installed? Would you be afraid of, you know, a system like that potentially being hacked or going obsolete, worry about the hardware not being upgradable, things like that? Because those are issues that already uh, exist with all of our hardware. Everything goes obsolete. Everything is hackable. And so as much of an advantage as it would be to, you know, have an augmented reality overlay or some sort of, uh, digital access immediately without a a hand device it would open up a whole lot of issues and a whole lot of danger just from you know being connected to the cloud yeah shit man i i hadn't even really thought about that to be honest with you uh i wasn't afraid of uh i mean i i would have said yeah i'm i'm all in i mean you got to start somewhere but when you talk about things getting outdated or getting hacked all of a sudden i'm like uh maybe i'll wait just a little bit longer till apple comes out with the mind meld 2.0 um but no i mean i i think that there's going to be a lot of concerns with this um you know human testing like but that's where so um you all know harari talks about this at length in I think both his books, Sapiens and Homo Deus, because at the end of Sapiens, he kind of talks about where we're going or where he thinks we're going as a species. And then his next book just explores that in depth. I can't wait to talk about it on the podcast. But um, he kind of brings up a very valid point that we start out, 
this the road to this enhancement is going to start out with medical issues, right? So it's going to be fixing parts that are broken, like a prosthetic leg that is in use for somebody that lost their leg um, or using CRISPR, like a gene healing technique like CRISPR to heal, say, Alzheimer's. Um, and this is an example he uses in the book, um, maybe not with CRISPR specifically. but So just imagine you have a treatment that not only cures Alzheimer's, but the people that are cured with Alzheimer's suddenly have a super memory. So now all these healthy people want a super memory too. Are you going to deny them this same treatment or are only the people that are afflicted with Alzheimer's going to be the ones that have this treatment and, and get a super memory? So that's it's going to be like a slippery slope where we're going to start out, you know, okay, we're not trying to enhance any humans here. We're just trying to, you know, give everybody the same rights, right, of having vision, having two legs that are ambulatory. You know, that's going to be, that's it's all going to be paved with the best of intentions. Now, me personally, I don't think that there's anything wrong necessarily or inherently with enhancing a human, but of course there's going to be issues with being a human is all about trying to enhance yourself. Right. But you know, there, there is going to be ethical issues that we face. Is it going to be just the rich? And if the rich already have such an advantage and they're the only ones that can uh, afford to enhance themselves or to heal any like genetic issues they may have, isn't that going to put them at more of an advantage? I mean, we're going to have our hands full just tackling the ethical issues of, that like next step of technology, but it's not going to be enough to hinder progress. It is going to fucking happen. I, I guarantee I, it. I think it's probably the first few steps towards it becoming like commercially viable will probably, probably be like a private experiment, like someone with the ability and the skill and the hardware doing it on themselves, you know, and then making a show of like what kind of advantage that gives them. It seems like you know the medical, uh, the medical reason for this technology to be developed. Someone is eventually going to apply that to themselves, just because they can. Yeah, I totally agree. I hope I live to see a time when it is commercially viable, uh, hardened against attack, and uh, just available to the general public. Because I would love to be a cyborg, but there are a lot of issues about it that do scare me you know specifically like the obsolescence and the ability to be hacked those are the things that i hope get worked out in uh in my lifetime yeah me too sign me up where do i sign uh you're up first buddy i okay. didn't want to i didn't want to mention it earlier but i already signed you up your first oh, human right. trial oh, oh that's sweet excellent yeah so uh brett what's um What's on your content circuit these days? Are you, uh, since we're uh, the time of recording this, we're sequestered away in our homes, writing out this plague. Yeah. So are you? Uh, yeah. Are you? Uh, you reading or playing or watching anything right now? Hell yeah, man! Glad you asked. So um, I, I have been reading this book um, called "Demonic Reality: A Guide to the Otherworldly" because it kind of is tickling my super esoteric UFO part of my brain that likes dreaming up 
bizarre theories as to why this UAP phenomenon is happening, but we're going to have to go off on some UFOs here soon, man. Yeah, it'll happen. But I, I actually had to put that down in the midst of this. I started uh, rereading World War Z again. It seemed a little applicable. Oh, man, it's so good, too. It's a good one. It's very, it's just very well written and a super unique take. Um, but I just watched Contagion recently, and uh, my wife was out flying a trip as a flight attendant um, so I think like my fear of her, you know, being exposed to this virus, I was like kind of feeling like maybe I'll feel better if I watch Contagion and I enjoyed it. It's a, cr- it's a great movie if you haven't seen it, but it also kind of, that's made not going to make you feel better. That thing is a much, it's a much more frightening, uh, pandemic than what we're facing now. Oh yeah, absolutely. But it's, it's just super well done. And then when she came home. I was telling her how great it was and she wanted to watch it. So we rented it and I watched it again. So I've watched Contagion like twice in three or four days. <laughs> oh, but that's not affecting your out- uh, outlook and what's happening. I feel great. Oh yeah. It sounds like that would help. <laughs> Is that you? it? You, uh, are you, uh, do anything else? Uh, I think that's it on content right now. Yeah. Yeah, the news. I gotta turn the news off. That that is turn content. That off. Yeah, it's that is not content. That's trash. <laughs> trash. <laughs> You're not wrong, Josh. Um, I got a few. Uh, I got a. Well, I got a book I'm reading right now um, by Daniel Suarez. It's called Delta V. It's about um, space exploration and asteroid mining in the near future. It's like 2033. And uh, I don't know if you've read any Daniel Suarez, but all of his books are meticulously researched and they they all involve some sort of near future technology issue or catastrophe or some sort of like expansion so you know like that that book is about asteroid mining and uh he has another book called damon which is about it's an augmented reality and it's uh you know it's a story where uh an augmented reality game kind of becomes like an overlay into everyday life and like everyone in the world is playing it, but so it becomes part of like the commerce system of the world. Super interesting. If you haven't checked out Daniel Suarez, you should basically just go l- download every book he has. Cause they're all fantastic. Yeah. Those sound and awesome. Then it's really good. I can, uh, I'm going to be covering some Daniel Suarez. I, I was actually thinking about just doing an entire Daniel Suarez episode because he has so many books. They're all highly recommended. And could easily touch on, you know, a little bit from each one of them. And you would you would want to read every single one of them after we discussed it a bit. And I've also, uh, which is a little out of character for me, I started playing uh, Call of Duty Warzone, which is the new free-to-play since I've got a little bit of time here in the evenings after everybody goes to sleep to play some games. Um, it's a new free-to-play. Uh, it's a giant map, so it's 150 players. Uh, 50 teams of three and you're all battling it out. You know, like it's, it's like a hundred and fifty or it's a 50 way front on the battlefield because everybody's coming from different directions. So it's really cool because the map is this giant expansive world. It's almost like an entire state or province of a country. So, you know, it's very immersive shooting game, which is fantastic. And then, um, you know, I kind of hate to admit it, but I did watch Contagion the other night too. <laughs> so, oh, you did? <laughs> I did, yeah. Of course. The reason course. I watched it though was because I read that uh, 
Steven Soderberg, he actually contacted uh, CDC and uh, the WHO and researched how a potential pandemic like that would play out. And then, you know, based his movie around the most realistic and up-to-date techniques for dealing with it. And then I just wanted to see how that kind of overlapped with what's happening now. And it doesn't seem like it's working uh, as efficiently as it did in the movie. And it did not work very efficiently in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> the pro- but you know what's really interesting is the uh, the uh, Jude Law character, how he's like the blogger and he's like sowing misinformation. It's crazy how far ahead of its time that concept was in that movie because that's not exactly what's happening now. It's not like a, an individual that's trying to put out misinformation, but it's kind of what's happening with our entire news system right now. It's all, it's all battling back and forth and just kind of like pushing for ratings or trying to discredit the other person. So there is like a huge misinformation element to what's happening to us. Right oh, now. absolutely. And the, you know, that, that movie was uh, from 2011 and, you know, when Jude Law's character says something about the blogosphere, I was like, were people calling it the blogosphere back then? But it was, I mean, it just like hit the nail <laughs> so on lame. the head. I mean, it's just, and you know what's interesting too about that movie? It would be so boring if it wasn't executed so fucking well. But it just yeah, really great. was. It's a great film. I'm actually a, an acquaintance with a guy that used to run an infectious disease lab. Like it was a mobile, you know, this, so he would have been called if he was still working right now. Um, he's a hematologist, so it's not exactly in his wheelhouse. Um, but if he was still, if he had his company that he used to work for, if he was still working for them, he would have been called out in the field to want probably one of these places where it's most rampant like China or he would have been, he would have been in Korea two weeks ago or Washington a week ago. Um, and he would have been, you know, kind of doing what they did. And so he, he told me that contagion is one of his favorite movies. And he's like, don't worry, this virus is not like that. It's a totally different kind of thing. But basically the movie is extremely accurate. And, and like you said, how things would pan out and who would be responsible for what, I mean, it's, it's, uh, just a just a very well executed uh, movie and what better time to watch it than now, man. <laughs> yeah. It's very prescient right now. It is. Sounds like we are not wasting this uh, shut in time. Definitely no. fueling up on uh, future uh, content for future episodes. Yeah, you're exactly right. I'm all about it. All right. Well, uh, you want to take a quick break and come back when get in some real content. The Content Clearinghouse is brought to you by Best Maps Ever. They make checklist posters for outdoor adventurers who want to see it all. If you want to visit every national park in the United States, climb every 14er in Colorado, or ski every slope in New England, Best Maps Ever posters are the perfect way to track and inspire your quest. Every single map is lovingly designed with icons marking each location so that you can stick a pin in the icon or color it in with a marker as you check off the areas that you've traveled to. So they offer mounting and framing services for maps that are ready for pinning right out of the box. Or if you prefer to mount the map yourself, there are tips on the website to help you do that. They have a slew of maps relating to protected areas and public lands like state parks, national forests, and even more obscure maps like the National Wild and Scenic Rivers system. 
So Josh, one of the maps that my wife and I have mounted in our camper is the National Park map. It's covered in pins because, well, you know, my wife and I, we uh, get around. And best maps ever makes our gallivanting around the country even more fun because we can put a pin in the map to prove that we've been there, done that. No one could ever cheat that system, Brett. Well, it is on the honor system. Best Maps Ever does not employ any sort of pin-related security system that will come to your house and check and see if you've actually visited the places you've pinned. <gasps> Since you brought it up, I have uh, the skydiving drop zone map hanging up in my office. It's one of the few decorations I have that's not celebrating one of my many athletic achievements. In fact, it's hanging up on the wall right next to my world's most humble man trophy. <whistles> For all your cartographic needs, visit bestmapsever.com. They've got the best... Maps ever. Clear it out. Hey, welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. Now I'm going to uh, I'm going to do a deep dive on one of my favorite pieces of content that exists in the entire world, Brett. I can't wait to hear about it. To start us off, let me ask you a question, Brett. Okay. Do you like uh, dystopian near future stories featuring entertainment with fatal consequences? Uh, yeah, that's kind of what we're living in right now. It sounds fucking great. Um, all right. Well, do you like young people in the prime of their life being forced to face their own mortality? Ooh, I feel like that's also what we're going through right now. Yeah. It does add some drama. <laughs> it does. If that's the case, then you will love uh, one of my top pieces of entertainment. It's a masterpiece of literature and a book that would certainly be on my desert island list. The Long Walk by Stephen King, a.k.a. Richard Bachman. Oh, that's a good one, yes. I know you like this one, Brett. I do. So uh, I think I may have actually recommended this to you in the past, didn't I? Yes, you have. You actually, uh, this is, I think, the first book recommendation you ever uh, ever gave me when we very first became friends. We're talking well over a decade ago, and man, this book is not only fantastic, but it kind of scared the shit out of me, to be honest. That's probably a great place for it to start here because uh, recommending this book to you may have been what, what uh, kick-started the whole idea for this type of podcast to exist for us to do this. So um, I guess let's get into the book a little bit. Uh, this book was, it was started in 1966, but it was not released until 1979. And, uh, it was written by Stephen King, and he was going by a pen name at the time, Richard Bachman, which seemed like kind of a strange thing. I looked into it a little bit. And the reason I found that you know one of the greatest writers of our time would be using a pen name was at the time of writing this book and a few other books, things like Thinner and The Running Man and uh, Rage, all Richard Bachman books, he was trying to answer the question of whether his success as a writer was based off of luck versus talent. So he wrote some books under the uh, Richard Bachman pen name and he his plan was to do very little advertising. He didn't want to he didn't want to put out like any kind of big push in the media to try to convince people to read books by Stephen King. He didn't want anyone to know that he was Richard Bachman so he could see if his stories stood on their own. And he was never really able to answer that question because of course someone in the media outed him. So he ended up just releasing these books under the Richard Bachman pen name. But then eventually, you know, once he, you know, what, there was a collection of, the, of them out there. 
brought them all together. And I originally read The Long Walk in a book called The Bachman Book. Was just, uh, it was just a collection of, of the Bachman stories. So as far as Stephen King stories go, this is a relatively short one. It's 384 pages, which is very concise for Stephen King's story. And one of the great things about it is that unlike most Stephen King stories that I've read, I wouldn't say I'm a huge fan, but most of the stories I feel like are somewhat rambling. They have a lot of long passages that are just you know, dialogue between characters that don't really add a whole lot. You could cut them out and the story wouldn't be affected. But this story is not like that. It has a very tight economy of words, which I really appreciate with the book. And uh, the premise is just one of the most interesting and twisted concepts that I've ever heard of. So in this book, uh, the, the story takes place in Maine. And uh, America is a, it's a near future dystopian America ruled by a milita- militaristic dictatorship. And the most popular entertainment it's basically the national pastime is an event called the long walk where these, uh, young men, uh, somewhere between 18 and 21 years old, they are selected for this event. They select 100 of them every single year. And the competition starts in Maine. Uh, they all start walking at the same time. Once they start walking, they have to maintain a pace of four miles per hour. Following behind them is, a military half track with soldiers on top of it. They're pacing them. If the walkers slow down below four miles an hour, they receive a warning. And if they get three warnings, the soldiers execute them. And then they walk until everyone is dead. And at the end, the person who walks the furthest basically outwalks 99 other people also outwalks their own, uh, their own sense of what a human can can do what you're capable of. They, uh, they receive something they just call it the prize, which it's never really specified what it is in the book, but you get the impression that it's just, it's anything you want. You know, it's money, it's power, it's a position in the world, uh, basically anything you want. So that concept, when I was first exposed to that, you know, I didn't even, I didn't even, realize, you know, how big this book was, or I don't know if I've ever even read a novel of this length before, but I just knew that concept is something that I needed in my brain right away. It's just, it's just so fascinating. I mean, it is, it is fucked up, man. Yeah. It's so twisted. And, you know, when this story was written, uh, when he started writing this book, 1966, this was right in the middle of the Vietnam draft years, which went from 64 to 73. And that was a time when, you know, our, our youngest and our most fit, uh, basically the, the future generation of men were being forced against their will to go off and, you know, participate in what is essentially a, a mortal sport or, you know, a combat scenario where they may not, even understand why they're going, you know, it's, it may be something that they, they have no skin in the fight, but since there's a draft, you know, our, our young men were being sent off and being killed by the thousands in Vietnam. And I've always kind of thought about this story as being a, um, kind of being, uh, a window into Stephen King's thoughts about the draft. So in the story, uh, in the long walk to get selected, to participate, 
they they have to go through a battery of physical and psychological exams. And, you know, a lot of people are weeded out for being physically unfit or they don't think that their mind is capable of withstanding the, uh, the psychological rigors of the walk. And so since it's promoted as such a, uh, you know, such an amazing pastime, it's the national sport. Everyone signs up, you know, everyone thinks that they're going to be the one to, to win the walk. And the way they select the actual hunter that will be going on the walk is they do a draft. They do an, uh, on, on TV, they pull the names out of the hat, which is very similar to what the draft was in Vietnam. And, you know, I, I think that I couldn't really find anything to back this up as far as, uh, you know, any stories about what Stephen King's mindset or if he knew people that got drafted, but I just assume living in that era, he must have. And I really think that this is a, you know, that this is his take on what it must've been like to be sitting in front of the TV and seeing people's names that, you know, being drawn to participate in this event where there's really no guarantee that anyone's coming back. In fact, almost everyone is probably going to die on this. Uh, you know, once, the, once they go off to participate, they're probably not coming back. Right. So what, what was it specifically about this book um, that really gripped you or that like really drew you in? Because I mean, Stephen King is such a prolific author and it's not, completely the kind of genre that I usually recommend to people. It's definitely not casual reading for me, and I do read a lot. Um, but this book, I mean, it really gripped me. So I'm curious, you know, why it's one that you consistently recommend to your friends and what it is about it that just like, it, it's it makes you want to talk about it on the first episode of the Content Clearinghouse. And you're all about content. It's one of my favorite stories that's ever been written. And I think the uh, the part that's so interesting, besides that concept, I feel like that concept, it needs to be a movie. Definitely. It's just too good. The fact that it's a book and it's something that you can reread over and over and get something different out of it every single time because you know your imagination is so powerful and it just paints such a, a vivid scenario in your mind. Like it's, it's great to have this on my Kindle, on my phone, be able to open it up, you know, like once every year or so and go on this crazy adventure again. The, uh, you know, the concept is very enticing, but also there is a, there's a very deep psychological aspect to how the people on this walk approach it, the different, uh, the different strategies that they use. So there are certain characters that are, you know, they're kind of friendly and they are talkative. They're just trying to pass the time. So they're learning everyone's stories. There are characters that are loners, you know, that their strategy is basically don't make any friends. You don't want to, you don't want to have any feelings when someone goes down other than that's just one less person. You have to walk into the ground. There are people that run purely on hate and there are they're actively trying to mentally sabotage the other walkers. And then there are some really interesting characters, people that are like, there's one group of walkers that are twins. And when the, uh, when, when the uh, main character in the story learns this, you know, it spawns this big discussion about what could possibly inspire two twin brothers to go on this walk where, you know, one of them isn't coming back. Right. And then, you know, there's wow. a lot of, 
there's a lot of theorizing about what it's going to be like when one of them lays down, you know, like, is the other brother going to try to save them? Do they have some sort of pact, you know, like, does their family need money? So they've just already accepted that, you know, if you fall down, I'm not going to pick you up. And that's probably, you know, the first time in the life of a twin that that's, you know, you wouldn't pick your brother up. So all these, all these psychological angles in the story, that's something that as I got older, you know, as I started to become more analytical in the con- content that I absorb, that's the kind of thing that keeps me coming back. You know, like I've, I think for the last 10 years, I've probably read this book every year or so. Wow. So fascinating and so fucked up at the same time. What a great book. So what is, what would your strategy be then? So I would like to think that I would be an emotionless terminator, but I just know that I, I wouldn't actually be able to do that. I think that I would just inherently maybe out of boredom, start making friends and start learning, you know, where people are from and why they're on the walk and things like that. Uh, I think that if I had any chance of winning the long walk, I would have to overcome just kind of my, my natural tendency to want to stave off boredom by talking to people. Typically I'm kind of introverted, which is why I'm okay. Just kind of sitting at home here while we're on a self-isolation. But I think if I was in a scenario like that, where there's nothing to do, but think, walk, talk, or die, I would probably be talking to people. And inherently you're going to end up learning things about those people that make you not want to see them lay down and die. Right. What about you? What, what would you do? You know, um, I, I I feel like I am a people person. I'm not like you. I, I really crave human connection. I want to be out. I want to meet new people. I want to make friends. Um, I don't get very comfortable when I'm just sitting by myself for very long periods of time. Um, but I like what you said about how you know, you'd uh, kind of want to get to know people and ask where they're from. That would be my first question. That's always a great icebreaker. So where are you from? Oh, Colorado. I got a cousin in Colorado, you know. So um, I'd start there, get the basics. Um, no, but I think, I don't know. It's, it's, that's a tough question to, uh, uh, to explore for sure because I'm not really somebody that has participated in like endurance sports at all really. So people that have gone on marathons or, um, you know, long backpacking trips where they're hiking seven hours, eight hours a day, um, and just covering some ground, man. So, so I think that's somebody that's like maybe participated in, in like an, in really an endurance athletic pursuit might have, um, sort of an insight into the into the mindset that you have to get into to to kind of just keep putting one foot in front of another, but but I, I just I think it just comes down to you know making a decision of if you want to live and if you want to die and and if you want to live you just have to give it everything you got and as I remember uh, so well in that book uh, there's you know there's definitely people that are are putting everything they have into just continuing walking forward. And that's that to me is like another awesome appeal of that of that novel is just it's just walking. 
I mean, that's that's the only thing you have to do. It's just so simple, right? It's not who's the fastest. It's not who jumps the highest, who is the you know best at some. It's just who can walk the furthest at just this very slow and consistent pace and just not stop, right? And that that to me, and once just, they get once they get further in, you know, it's like them retreating into their mind, like creating this shell around themselves where they're blocking out, you know, external stimuli and they're not acknowledging the pain in their body. It's just sinking down into like the lizard part of your brain on autopilot where you're, you know, that part of your brain knows if I stop moving, I'm going to die. So, you know, these guys end up sleeping and then they'll wake up and they're like, you know, eight miles down the road and you know, they have no idea what even happened, but their body on autopilot is just keeping them going. And that's, that's a very, that's a very human response. You know, there's a lot of stories about people in these extreme survival scenarios, you know, like lost in the mountains. Like, have you seen, um, have you seen, uh, touching the void? I don't think I have a, a documentary about, um, a mountain climber that he, they get into an accident. He ends up hanging over a, uh, over a cliff on a rope and then his partner seeing no way to save him ends up cutting the rope because you know, it's either one of them dies or they both die. But this guy falls, he goes into a, an ice chasm and then, you know, broken leg and shattered arm, all these injuries, but just that lizard part of his brain, he ends up crawling out of this cave pat over a glacier all the way back down, like eight, 10 miles down, a mountain to their to their base camp and ends up surviving which is why you know there's a documentary about it but that's definitely something that the human mind its refusal to accept its own mortality and its refusal to lay down and die it's a big part of the story like this and that's you know those elements are are certainly drawn from actual human experience which is so amazing you know that's the uh that that's what's so enticing about a story like this because i think everyone kind of wonders yeah. If they were in a scenario, would their mind keep their body alive? Absolutely. Right. And who we knows? All, I mean, I don't know yeah. if mine would. No right. one knows until you're put in that situation. We all, we all wish that we knew, but we don't want to go through what it takes to know. Yeah, you basically have to to go through a scenario like that, you would have to accept that you're already dead. And the reason that you see a documentary about a story like that is because that's definitely an outlier. You know, the fact right. that anyone survives something like that is it's a it's an absolute miracle, but it's not a it's not a guarantee just having a human mind and body does not guarantee that there's some part deep down inside of you that would allow you to survive. And in a story like this, you know, 99 of these guys they don't survive. Every right. single one of them finds where their breaking point is. That's an interesting part of the story is when that starts happening, they all kind of break in different ways. And that's, yeah. you know, that's a, one of the big psychological aspects of it. You get to see like how different, how different archetypes of humans reach their endpoint and what it takes for them to give up. It's very astute. I can't believe that this was written by a 19 year old. You know, it's like such a deep dive. Like Stephen King's brain must just be this, this supercomputer of storytelling and of just just human experience, the way that he sees the world. Oh, it's got to be so dark in there. 
yeah, I'm sure it's not a, I'm sure it's not a fun place to live, but right. he does create some amazing stories. He does. You know, there was something else that, uh, this is, this kind of goes back to the Vietnam thing. Um, actually I just had this thought today. This is a brand new thought about this story and it revolves around the prize and how the reason that these guys are actually doing this, the reason anyone's taking this risk is because the prize is just something that can change their life. And that was another, you know, that was another similarity to just uh, soldiering in the world that we live in where, you know, we have a volunteer army and there are a few reasons, you know, that it seems that someone in the prime of their life would join the military. You know, they're looking for adventure or they are looking to test themselves or they're looking for something like the GI bill that has the power to change their life and, you know, provide them with an education and provide them with, you know, a, a steady paycheck. And if you were to just, if you took all those elements out of it, it's hard to see why anyone would put their life on the line to go to war other than, you know, like a, a patriotism to protect our, to protect our country. But, you know, and, other than that, it's hard to see why someone like how I was when I was 18 years old, you know, and I'm like skateboarding and like, Oh, I'm gonna start skydiving soon. You know, it's hard to give that stuff up, especially when you're young and selfish, but those other, those other enticements really do bring a lot of people to that life. Right. And the significance of the prize, you know, that, that is the main reason they're all there. And it's interesting, you know, what those parallels are with the military, how the, uh, you know, the, things like the GI Bill, that brings a lot of people from uh, economic background or sociological background that wouldn't have access to something like college, leads them to, you know, like, I'll risk my life for four years to go and get the option to get out of the scenario that I'm currently living in. Yeah. Hmm. Man, what an awesome book. That's a good one. Good one for the content yeah, it's, clearinghouse. It's absolutely fantastic. I would recommend The Long Walk by Richard Bachman to anyone who likes sci-fi, horror, um, just good books in general. So if you read, you should probably be reading The Long Walk. It's absolutely one of the greatest books ever written. If it's not already in your, uh, in your Kindle, you should download it. Super cheap. Go check it out, everybody. Awesome. Thanks, Josh. Man, I appreciate it. I need to revisit that. It's been a while since I've read The Long Walk. But damn, I'm I'm already thinking of uh, the very last line of that book that just haunted me. I mean, I, I can tell you the last sentence verbatim. I won't, but, I, but I'm just saying what an impact this, this book has on people. I can remember uh, the last sentence too. Oh, it just, it rattles around in my brain. So check it out. The long walk. Uh, we're so grateful for you for, uh, joining us on this journey. We're figuring, figuring everything out. We're figuring out, uh, how to survive in this, this new self-isolation. We're figuring out how we want to, uh, express ourselves on this format. And, and, you know, we think we have a lot of great content, um, that we want to bring you. We, we love, uh, reading. We love watching shows. We love playing video games. So um, we're really grateful for you uh, to listen to us and to take time out of your precious day. And hopefully we can bring some 
fantastic content recommendations into your life. That's that's Josh and I's hope is that we can uh, maybe inspire you to find your next obsession, whatever it may be. We want you guys to love the same stuff that we love. That's right. Thanks again for listening. We appreciate it. Tune in again, Content Clearinghouse. House.